Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. History happens around us and culture shifts, but we're not even that aware of it. You know, we just keep living, putting one foot in front of the other. I realized that I had really covered a big change in culture, in history, and in aviation. When the protagonist of a well-written novel is, is afraid, your heart is beating faster, right? When the protagonist has something horrible happen to them, you are crying. You liked a lot of the same things? Oh, that I, I was so happy to hear that. I've been a matchmaker over 20 years now. My youngest client is 40, and my oldest client, believe it or not, is 93. Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm Michelle San Miguel. We begin tonight with a story about acclaimed author and Rhode Island native Anne Hood. Before Hood was a writer, she was a flight attendant. When we first aired this segment back in June, Hood had taken to the skies with a memoir about a time when the objectified stewardesses of the past were fighting for equal rights during the women's liberation movement. I thought, I need adventures to be a good writer. Where am I going to get adventures? I grew up in West Warwick. I led a pretty sheltered life. I went to URI. I didn't really see the world at all. And I thought, I'll be a flight attendant and I'll have experiences. So please help me welcome Anne Hood, author of Flyboy. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Long before she was an acclaimed New York Times bestselling author, Anne Hood was a flight attendant. It was the late 1970s when women's liberation was a fledgling movement and commercials to lure businessmen into becoming frequent flyers looked like this. Fly me. slip into something a little more comfortable. Are we putting you on? Jet with Unbelievable, right? TWA infamously had paper uniforms for a while that used to rip as you wore them and they'd have to duct tape themselves into their uniforms. Braniff famously had something called the airstrip where they changed their clothes four times on the flight in the aisles. Kept, just kept taking things off till they landed in their hot pants. So listen, we get why this, you know, we were objectified and why there was the sex kitten idea. How did you feel about that, having to always worry about your weight, your makeup, how you looked was so much yeah. emphasis on that, and that had to go against the grain a bit. Well, you know, I think if you wanted the job, you knew you were entering like a corporate culture. You know, I, I remember when men who went to work for IBM had to wear particular ties. Like, you know, I think that every corporation has kind of an image they want, so you're signing up for it. So it's not like you're surprised or oppressed. And women were still accepting of it. Absolutely. Hood says she was proud to wear her Ralph Lauren uniform. She flew for eight years, most of them with TWA, Trans World Airlines. During her tenure, flight attendants unionized, fought for equal pay, and ultimately ended the weight, marriage, and pregnancy restrictions. But it wasn't easy. Why did you decide to become a flight attendant? I had stars in my eyes from the time I was a little girl. And I knew I wanted to be a writer, too. So it would seem like this would be the perfect book for you to write. What took so long? You know, we live our lives, and history happens around us, and culture shifts. But we're not even that aware of it. You know, we just keep living, putting one foot in front of the other. I realized that I had really covered 
a big change in culture, in history, and in aviation. You know, I started in 1978 where many women still had one foot in the past. To me, a certain image of flight attendants is never going to go away. The ad executives did a very good job of imprinting that in our minds. And so glorified waitress, sex kitten, objectified, unfortunately still linger. I had a passenger once say to me when I said, oh, I loved that book that he was reading. And he said, you read? But I never thought it reflected on me. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I knew I was smart. I knew I was getting the life I wanted. And I was learning so much, you know, just learning how to talk to people. You must be unflappable. I pretty much am. <laughs> you know, when, um, when passengers say and do things that are so weird, you have to figure out how to take care of it on the spot or, you know, how to diffuse anger because the flight attendant is the one who gets blamed for bad food, weather, any flight delays, mechanical problems, lost luggage. You know, you come on, the passengers come on ready to blame the flight attendant and you have to be able to make them feel okay. But what I suspected and what turned out to be true that is that it was the most empowering job a young woman could have. You made all the decisions on that plane. You didn't have a boss, really. You went all over the world and often had to venture out by yourself if the crew didn't want to go out or didn't want to go out with you. You learned how to handle emergencies, to, t to think on your feet. You learned poise. You were confident. You put on that uniform and you became a confident woman. Why did you not want to become a pilot and have that adventure? I think I'm too much of a coward. I do, I do not like the idea of landing a big plane like that. I'm not a risk taker. Hmm. I would say you took a lot of risks <laughs> doing that when you did it. I don't know. Hood writes about dealing with some eccentric passengers, like the time she found a man sitting on the plane without his pants. Sir, where are your pants? And he said, up there. And I said, um, well, you have to have pants on. He said, I can't. Why can't you wear your pants? Well, I have a job interview and they'll wrinkle. <laughs> and so I felt for him and I got him a blanket and he sat covered the whole time. But that's what I mean about thinking on your feet. You never knew what was going to happen when you get on that plane. I always said, life unfolds on airplanes. You're in that like tin can with 300 people on a 747 or our small planes had about 100 and you're there for hours and things happen. People go into labor, people fall in love, people break up. People die? People die, yeah. Little did Hood know she would one day write about the sudden death of her five-year-old daughter, Grace, taken by a fatal form of the strep virus. One of a, a writer's jobs is to make sense out of the chaos that's life. You know, life is messy, um, life is hard, and a writer has to have the ability to step back and write about that truthfully and bravely, really. And when we lost Grace, that was in 2002, um, I couldn't read or write for over a year. I mean, I was completely destroyed. And everyone kept saying to me gently and nicely, write about it. I thought, I can't because I can't make sense out of something senseless. And then one day I realized, wait, I've got to write about this honestly. I'll write it as a novel. So I, you know, I changed everything, but I got to the emotion that it was hard to put out when I'm telling my real story. And I wrote The Knitting Circle. And that kind of freed me to write the real story. And the real story, like her novel The Knitting Circle, became a bestseller. Her memoir, Comfort, A Journey Through Grief, was the book Hood says she wished had been available for her. Over time, I had been making as much sense as one can. 
and that if I, if I published that book, there would be countless people who would benefit from it. And that indeed is what happened. I get letters every week when someone finds comfort and reads it. Despite logging hundreds of thousands of miles as a flight attendant, the author still hasn't fallen out of love with flying, especially when it's with her family. Her husband is chef and writer Michael Ruhlman. There's also grown son Sam and teenage daughter Annabelle. She says they tease her that sometimes she acts like she's still on duty. I'm either the most fun person to fly with or the worst because I'm so, it, put your tray table up, you know, to my family. It's time to put your, Turn that off, you're not supposed to have that on. Put that under the seat in front of you, you know. Old habits die hard. Oh my gosh, and I check it out, and I'm always aware if the flight attendants are doing a good job. Do you confess to being a flight attendant to I them? I do. You often get like a free bottle of wine or something if you tell them, <laughs> so it's good, I always do. Why did you name it Fly Girl? Because it has a double meaning. TWA called them hostesses, not stewardesses, so there was a lot of different names for them, but they were all Fly Girls. They were all, that was the general name. But I liked the idea of fly girl, like soar, like take off, and start your life. So fly girl, yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. So when you think about it now, would you do it all over again? 100%, I wouldn't even think about it. I even sometimes have a fantasy of, I'm gonna apply again. I could do it for a couple more years. Because as she writes, Never has the magic of flying been more obvious to me than on a long ago December flight right before Christmas of 1985. The captain of the 747 I was working from Rome invited me to sit in the cockpit for landing. And as we descended, snow started to fall, small bright flakes like fairy dust. Then Manhattan came into sight. The air grew tense, electric with voices and the crackles of the radio. The ground seemed to lift up to greet us, the lights of the runway and the jet brighter until the wheels hit the ground it's something, isn't it, the captain said softly. I could only nod. Few times in my life have I experienced something that felt that majestic, that, that reminded me that I, that all of us on this world are alive. When I understood, or understood as much as we can, how sky and earth and snow and light and, and man, man coexist. coexist. Thank you. Fly Girl will soon be out in paperback, and Hood tells us that she's now writing a new book, which will be released next year. Up next, an adage that many authors subscribe to, write the book you want to read. It's something that rings true for Rhode Island-based and Indian-American writer Padma Venkatraman. While Venkatraman long dreamed of becoming an author, she took a detour of sorts, sailing the seas as an oceanographer. But as she told us when we first aired this story last October, writing was never far from her mind, and so was her desire to share what she describes as the sea of stories within her. I always wanted to write books that could be accessed by young people. I, I don't know why, but maybe because they have this passion, and I think that we've messed up the world quite a bit, and if anyone's going to fix them, it's going to be the young people. Author Padma Venkatraman has been writing works of fiction for young adult readers for more than a decade. Her five novels transport readers to India, where she shines a light on marginalized communities. For a little while, you know, you're in someone else's body because when the protagonist of a well-written novel is, is afraid, your heart is beating faster, right? When the protagonist has something horrible happen to them, 
you are crying. And I think that for me is empathy and compassion and those are the two highest things I think that a human being can achieve in their lives. Venkatraman says she learned those qualities growing up in India. When she was eight years old, her parents separated. It was an event that changed the course of her life. My mother went from being this very wealthy person, very wealthy woman, to being suddenly the person who had to work very hard to keep you know, a house and home together. Venkatraman moved to the United States when she was 20 to attend graduate school. It was an isolating experience for Venkatraman, who came to the States alone. I could not even speak to my mother more than six minutes once a month, okay? So usually it was three minutes once every two weeks. That was all the time I had. When your mom is halfway across the world and she says, are you okay? You say yes, because what else are you going to say, right? She's called Rhode Island home for more than 15 years. Venkatraman lives in Narragansett. But her native India is never far from her mind. Her most recent book, Born Behind Bars, highlights the country's prison conditions. I didn't read the author's note until the end yeah. and came to find out that this was, in fact, inspired by a true story. Can you tell me about that story and how you came across it? I saw a BBC News report about this one child who had been born in jail in India. Well, this woman, um, whom they were talking about, had been in jail for so long that she'd had this son in jail. And I thought, that's shocking and that's horrifying. And when I saw the image of this little boy, he just became a character in my mind. And I saw this little kid, you know, sitting in this dirty, dingy jail cell. Born Behind Bars tells the story of a boy who's released from prison after spending his whole life there with his mom. Padma is the author of many wonderful books, such as A Time to Dance, Climbing the Stairs, and The Bridge Home. Venkatraman recently received an award from the Boston Authors Club for the novel. I could hear his voice breaking through the bars on that jail cell and leaving through the gaps and reaching the sky and the stars because that boy could sing. And they could imprison his body, but they could not imprison his mind. They could not imprison his spirit. You gave a very impassioned speech that day at the ceremony. Yeah. Where does that emotion come from? So when I came to this country, I was not even legal drinking age. I came alone. I came by myself. I did not have anybody for miles around that I knew. And I think going from there to being a citizen of this country, whenever, whenever I get an award, any kind of recognition that says we love your work and we're glad that you are one of us, that is amazing to me. I love the ocean. I grew up in a city near the ocean in India and I feel really blessed and so lucky that I live in the ocean state now. Venkatraman's love for the ocean brought her to the University of Rhode Island where she taught oceanography and directed diversity efforts. Her career has taken her around the world, from serving as chief scientist on research cruises in Germany to working in laboratories in India. Even though Venkatraman always wanted to be a writer, she says pursuing oceanography allowed her to be financially independent. 
Was oceanography more of a safety net financially? Is that why you chose to explore that? Yes, although it's an odd choice for a safety net. And I think part of the reason I did that was because it's also my passion. I decided that I wanted to do something no one in my family had ever heard of. I was a bit of a rebel. Uh, and everybody said, what is oceanography in India? And my whole family thought I was a bit bonkers. And, you know, I kind of was, I guess. So I did, decided to do that. That rebellious streak, Venkatraman says, came from being bullied as a child after her parents separated. I felt like when I was a child, I had so much wealth, so much privilege. And then suddenly to lose all of that as a child was something that impacted me in a very deep way. Ven Katraman's books are geared for young adults, but that doesn't stop her from exploring some serious subjects. For instance, her novel, The Bridge Home, chronicles the life of homeless children in India while touching on issues such as alcoholism and abuse. What makes you think as you're writing this that these are topics that young adults want to read about? So for one thing, I think I experienced a lot of very traumatic things when I was young. And I think to be able to express that in an honest way, but not a graphic way, is important to me. As a young girl, Venkatraman says she never found a book that mirrored her own life. When she moved to the United States, she fell in love with the country's public library system and feels grateful to see her work there. The fact that a book or something that you write can touch someone's life and change it, that's something I never, never get used to. She says being an Indian American author allows her to bring a unique voice to the world of young adult fiction. It sounds to me like you are writing the books that you desperately wanted to read as a young girl. Yes, uh, I definitely think that's true. I also think I'm writing the books still that I want my daughter to be able to read or my daughter's generation to be able to read and hopefully for years and years and years to come, you know? And one of the things she loves most about her work is connecting with readers. What's the response you get from readers as you're traveling around the world, specifically in your native India? What do readers say to you about how your work has affected them? I think Seeing your story on the page can be very, very emotionally um, empowering. And I think a lot of children are empowered by that. And I know children who have been abused that then reached out to an adult and went to a safer place because they read The Bridge Home, right? That is that's not even a gift. That is beyond anything that you could even dream for or hope for. Just that uh, the fact that you could touch someone else's life like that in a positive way. And that's what I, that's every time that happens and that has happened, you know, many, many times, that's huge. Where do you see yourself five years from now? I hope I'll be writing books that will still and in even greater numbers, empower young people, you know, empower them, uh, bring those who are not safe into safer situations. That would be where I hope I'd end up.
As Valentine's Day nears, chocolates have filled the shelves, and florists are selling roses by the dozens. As part of our continuing My Take series, we thought we'd use the holiday as an opportunity to talk to someone unique in the business of love, Rhode Island's own matchmaker. So let me, let me ask you a question. How was your date last night? It was wonderful. Okay, good. Hi, my name is Deborah LaRue, and this is my take on finding love. I found love late in life. I started dating my now current husband at 47 years old. He was actually a high-end painter, and I hired him to paint my house. And you know what? When he came in, I thought, ooh, there's just something about him. I was a little more sneaky about it. Um, he also does maintenance, so I asked him, could you uh, hang my curtains? Could you hang my pictures? Could you work in my backyard and put up a shed? And I used to call him, and so it kind of progressed over a few months. On July 9th of the year 2000, he was in the house doing some work, and I was just kind of following him around, and there was a lot of chemistry, and he just turned around and kissed me. And it was magic. And from that moment on, quite literally, the rest of my life has changed. I've been a matchmaker over 20 years now, and I absolutely feel like it's my life's calling to help people find love like I did. Had I ever heard of a matchmaker before? Well, we've all heard matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Matchmaker, matchmaker, look through your book and make me a perfect match. I'm sure everyone knows that song. I help people that have been in long-term marriages or relationships get ready to date again. My youngest client is 40, and my oldest client, believe it or not, is 93. I have a client, she was 20 years old when she got married, and she was 75 when her husband passed away. So my goodness gracious, over a half a century, she had not dated. So with her, we went very slow. And I do relationship coaching along with matchmaking. What I think the secret to finding love is, a couple of things. One is to be a successful single while you're looking and that you enjoy your life. The other thing I, I really recommend you do is say yes. Basically find reasons to go out, to have fun, to enjoy life. You like a lot of the same things? Oh, that I, I was so happy to hear that. That's nice, that is wonderful. Oh my goodness, she likes fly fishing, really? I think my favorite clients are uh, those that are widowed because they were in long-term happy marriages and we all know that we're going to, one of our spouses will pass away at a certain point. But when that happens, it takes courage to start again. I have a recent couple, he was widowed, she was widowed, uh, he relocated here from New York City and came in very timid and shy and uh, when I sent him out with this lady, who, they were both in their 70s, they both called me separately and said, I think I found the one. And when that happened, my heart just skipped a beat. And it's seven months later and they're still deliriously in love. 
I'll let you know uh, more after I talk to her. I haven't had a chance to speak to her today, but I'm sure I will be. All righty? All right. Have a nice day. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. That was a great date. <laughs> I'm so excited. My name is Deborah LaRue, and this was my take on finding love. Our My Take series was inspired by PBS NewsHour's Brief But Spectacular series. And that's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Michelle San Miguel. And I'm Pamela Watts. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, please follow us on Twitter and Facebook and visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly or listen to our podcast on your favorite audio streaming platform. Thank you and good night.